Welcome to this Uvula audio production of Smuggler's Reef by John Blaine. Volume 3, Chapter 5, The Mysterious Phone Call Rick hung up the phone in the Spindrift Library and turned to Scotty. Jerry is using his car tonight, but Duke says, okay. He'll make out a reporter's identity card for you and a photographer's card for me. Only if anything interesting turns up, we have to give him a story. Good thing papers have rewrite men, Scotty said, grinning. It's all I can do to write a readable letter. A new story would be way beyond me. Rick picked up the phone again. I'll see if Gus is using his car. Gus, owner, chief mechanic, and general factotum of the Whiteside Airport, had loaned his car to Rick on several occasions. His hope, he explained every time, was that Rick would drive it to pieces so he could collect the insurance and get a better one. In a moment, Gus answered, Yes, Gus. Rick here, Gus. That ancient clunk of yours still running? Gus's voice assumed wounded dignity. Are you speaking of my airplane or my automobile? Your limousine. You using it tonight? Nope. Don't drive it any more than I have to. When do you want it? About eight, if that's all right. Okay, I'll drop it off at the dock. Don't bother bringing it back. Just let me know where it is so I can tell the insurance company. I'm a safe driver, Gus, Rick said with a grin. If I believed that, I wouldn't lend you the car. Leave it in my backyard when you get through with it, okay? Thanks a million, Gus. I'll take good care of it. Don't. You'll spoil it. Rick rang off. What time is it? About half past three, Scotty said. Why? Let's take the cub up for a little spin. Scotty chuckled. You're never as happy as when you're trying to unravel a mystery. Any mystery. You don't like it, Rick scoffed. You like a peaceful, quiet life. A book and a hammock, that's for you. Why don't you get one of your oat operas to read and leave the mystery to me? That'll keep you out of trouble, Scotty said amiably. It isn't because I'm interested. They walked from the house into the orchard that separated the low, gray stone laboratory buildings from the house and headed toward the airstrip. The strip was grass-covered and just big enough for a small airplane like Rick's. It ran along the seaward side of the island with the orchard on one side and the sea cliff on the other. I just thought, Scotty said suddenly, we'd better have some binoculars if we're going to go out there and take a look at the fleet. I'll warm up while you go get him, Rick agreed. He started the engine and warmed the plane until Scotty arrived with a pair of ten-power binoculars. Scotty untied the parking ropes and pulled out the wheel chocks and then got into his seat. Let's go, he said. Rick nodded and advanced the throttle. In a moment, 
The cub lifted easily from the grass. Rick settled down to the business of flying. He looked at the sea below and estimated the wind force. Mentally, he figured his probable drift and then decided on a south-southeast course as his compass heading and swung the little plane in that direction. Checked the equipment recently? Scotty asked. He referred to the two-man life raft and signaling pistol Rick had purchased from Navy Surplus for just such overwater flights as this. Went through it on Saturday. But don't worry, we won't get your feet wet. You hadn't better, Scotty retorted. These are new shoes I have on. He paused. What did you think about that warning? They had discussed it thoroughly on the way home from Seaford, examining all the possibilities. I haven't changed my mind, Rick said. I think it was Carrots Kelso. He reasoned that Red Kelso, the young man's father, had too much sense to try warding them away. The only purpose the warning would serve would be to arouse their curiosity even more, which it had certainly done. That Carrots kid is a queer one, Scotty said. He had to raise his voice slightly because of the engine's drone. Did you notice that raffle he carried? And how? It looked like a thirty-thirty. It wasn't. Rick looked at Scotty in surprise. No? Nope. Looked like one because of that lever. Sport carbines have those to lever cartridges into the chamber. But this one had a lever for pumping air. I've only ever seen one like that before. And a professional hunter in Australia had one. He used it for collecting specimens when he didn't want to make noise. Sometimes he found several wallabies or Tasmanian wolves together, and he could get two or three before they knew what was up. You mean an air gun has enough power to be used for hunting? Rick knew the modern air guns had high penetrating power, but he had never heard of one powerful enough to use on animals as big as wolves. This model has, Scotty told him. It was made by the Breda Gun Company in Czechoslovakia, before the war, the slug is a twenty-five caliber, but it's heavier than the kind we have in the United States. I wonder where he got it. Hard to tell. They're pretty damn expensive, believe me. The cub had been flying over a few hundred feet above the water. Behind them, the New Jersey coast was still in sight. Rick climbed to a thousand feet and told Scotty to start looking for the fishing fleet. How many shots can you get out of an air rifle like that? Just one. It's automatic loading, but it has to be pumped up every time. That's not as hard as it sounds, because the pump is made so that two strokes will give you a full air charge, but it's about as fast as firing a single-shot twenty-two rifle. Rick's eyes scanned the horizon. How do you suppose Carrots tracked us to Captain Mike Shack? Easy enough, he could hike along the shore and keep us inside. But he was risking being seen when he put that warning on the seat. Suppose one of us had looked out the window. Well, then he could have just pretended he was hiking or looking at the boat or something. It wasn't really much of a risk. Yeah, I suppose not, Rick agreed. Small specks in the horizon caught his eye suddenly, and he pointed. Look, there's the fleet. Scotty held the binoculars to his eyes. Sure enough, about eight trawlers so far, pretty well scattered. In a few moments, they could see clouds of gulls and petrels around the boats, a sure sign of plenty of fish. 
Then they made out the details of the big nets used by the fishermen for catching the Manhattan. See if you could spot the albatross, Rick said. You'll have to go down and pass each boat. I couldn't make out the names from this height. Okay, here we go. On each of the craft, the fishermen waved as the cub sped past. Scotty read the names aloud, and none of the trawlers was the albatross. Rick put the cub into a climb. There must be other trawlers around. Let's go up and take a look. Scotty shook his head. Now, nah, I got a better idea. We'll see the albatross tonight anyway. Why not go into shore and fly over Crick House? Sometimes you can see things from the air you can't see from the ground. Rick considered this. Flying out to the fleet had been only an impulse anyway. He hadn't expected to see anything. He was quite sure the albatross would look and act just like the rest of the Seaford fleet. That's a good idea, he said finally, and banked the cub around. He pointed the little plane south of west to compensate for the wind and then settled back. Rick kept an eye out for landmarks as the coast approached, and he presently made out the steel towers of an antenna field. That would be the Loren radio range, south of Seaford. He had compensated a little too much for drift. He banked north, and in a few moments, Scotty spotted Seaford. Rick dropped down, but kept out to sea so that he wouldn't violate law by flying too low over towns. He saw the windmill and Captain Mike's shack behind it. Go past Smuggler's Reef, then turn around and come back over Crick House, Scotty suggested. Rick nodded. Dead ahead, he could see the curving arm of the reef and the wreck of Tyler's trawler. He saw that the fishing craft had piled up just about midway between the navigation light of the reef's tip and the old tower where the light formerly had been. Men were working about the trawler. Then, as the cub flashed overhead, he saw a large truck had backed down the reef toward the wreck as far as it was safe to go. Scotty had been watching through the glasses as Rick swung wide out to sea and banked around to go south again. You know what they're doing down there? They're stripping that wreck. I guess that makes sense, Rick replied. Probably the insurance company wants to salvage what it can. They'd have to act fast before seawater ruined the engines. He banked sharply over Brendan's marsh. To the right was the highway leading from Whiteside to Seaford. Between the highway and the sea was the marsh. Although the marsh looked like solid growth from the ground, it could be seen that it was cut up by narrow waterways, most of which wandered aimlessly through the rushes and then vanished. Salt Creek was sharply defined, however, indicating it was much deeper than the surrounding water. The creek house was fenced in on only two sides, he saw. The high board separated it from the next hotel on the south and from the road on the seafront. But inland, a continuation of the marsh served as a dividing line. Salt Creek made the fourth side. The old mansion was set in the middle of the square with a big combination garage and boathouse behind it, almost against the marsh on the creek side. The doors were opened, and he could make out a black car, probably a coupe or a Tudor model, in one of the stalls. See anybody? Scotty asked. Not a soul. Evidently, the Kelsos were indoors. Rick climbed as the cub passed over Seaford, and then turned out to sea again, and went northward again. Scotty kept the glasses on Smuggler's Reef. As they flashed past, he swiveled sharply. Rick, 
Make another run over the wreck. You won't be able to see it if I go right over it. I don't want to see the wreck. I want a closer look at that old tower. Rick shot a glance at his pal. Did you see something? I'm not sure. Well, I'll throttle down so you can get a better look. He made a slow bank, lined up the wreck, and throttled down, dropping the nose to a shallow glide in order to maintain flying speed. As the cub passed over the old tower, he looked curiously. He couldn't imagine what had attracted Scotty's interest. The thing was only a steel frame, red with rust. Not even the top platform was left. Off Seaford, he banked out to sea again. Did you see enough? Scotty dropped the binoculars to his lap. I saw bright metal on the lowest cross girder. I couldn't tell much, but it looked like a deep scratch, and some of the rust had been flaked off around the spot, too. I could tell because it was redder colored than the rest. Rick thought it over. I can't make anything out of that, he said finally. What's your guess? Scotty shrugged. I don't have one, but it's a cinch someone has been up there, and within the past couple of days, too. Raw metal rusts fast right over the sea like that, and this spot was bright enough to attract my attention. Maybe we better have a closer look from the ground. I guess it wouldn't hurt, Rick agreed. Well, what now? Might as well go home, Scotty said. We can take it easy until after dinner and then go to Whiteside, pick up those cars from Duke and get the car from Gus. They'd been flying steadily north. A moment later, Spindrift loomed up on the horizon. Rick saw the gray laboratory building, and to its left, Pyrus Field, where the rocket launcher had once stood. He waited until the cub was abreast of the old oak on the mainland that he used as a landmark, and then cut the throttle. The plane lost altitude rapidly, passing a few feet over the radar antenna on the laboratory building, and settling to the grass strip. Rick gunned the tail around and rolled to the parking place. They staked down the cub and walked through the orchard to the town. In the kitchen, Mrs. Brant was rolling out pie crust. She smiled at the boys. Have you been out flying? We went out to watch the fishing fleet, Rick said, then swung down a receiver for another look at that wrecked trawler. What kind of pie are you making, Mom? Butterscotch. Scotty smacked his lips. We should have waited a little while. Then we could have had a sample when we got in. No samples, Mrs. Brant said. It would spoil your supper. Not mine, Scotty replied. Nothing spoils my supper. Got any donuts handy, Mom? Mrs. Brant sighed. In the stone crock, and there's milk in the refrigerator, but only one donut. Only one, Scotty agreed. How about you, Rick? I'm not hungry, thanks. I think I'll go up and work on the camera for a while. He would have over an hour to work on it before it was time to eat. He started for the stairs and then paused as the telephone rang. Harson Brandt, who was working in the library, answered it and called. Rick, it's for you. I'll take it upstairs, Dad. He hurried to the top of the stairs and picked up the hall phone. Hello? Rick Brandt? Rick stiffened. It was a man's voice, but obviously disguised, as though he spoke through a handkerchief hold over the mouthpiece. Yeah? Who is it? A friend, the disguised voice answered. You're a nice kid. I don't like to see you getting into trouble. 
Keep on a Seaford. Remember that. Keep on a Seaford. And stop flying over in your airplane or you're going to get hurt. You won't be warned again. Next time you'll wake up in the hospital. There was a click as the speaker hung up. Chapter 6 The Albatross Know what I like about you? Scotty said. My charm? Rick answered. Or is it that I like food as much as you do? Neither. What I like about you is your caution. The very soul of prudence. That's what you are. Your instinct for self-preservation is exceeded by only one thing. My, Rick said, that's almost poetic. What's the one thing? Your instinct for getting into trouble, Scotty stated. You get a warning to stay away from Seaford, so what happens next? He waved at the scenery as they sped past in Gus's old car. Naturally, we head for Seaford at 90 miles an hour, not even stopping to pick up our press cards. Rick laughed. Be accurate. This old heap can't go 90 miles an hour. Besides, it's only my never-ending search for the truth that leads me to Seaford. I want to find out if the warning is true. Scotty sighed. Whoever it was that phoned you should know you as I do. If we needed anything to sharpen the famous Brant nose for trouble, it was that phone call. I suppose now we'll spend all our waking hours commuting back and forth to Seaford. Not at all, Rick corrected. Some of the time we'll be in Seaford. Do you have any idea who was it found? Could have been anybody. I don't think it was Carrots Kelso, though. The voice was an older man's. Maybe it was his father, but I didn't hear enough of his voice to recognize it. Why should anybody worry about us looking into things? Respect, Rick said, wincing as the car bounced across Salt Creek Bridge. Respect for the genius of Spindrift's two leading detectives. Can't think of any other reason. Unless whatever is going on would be so obvious to anybody who actually took the trouble to investigate that the party concerned doesn't even want two simple-minded souls like us poking around. Oh, such modesty, Rick clucked. Okay, Hawkshaw, Scotty said resignedly. On to Seaford. We'll probably find the answer just as the villain lowers the boom on us. Rick swung into the Seaford turnoff and slowed for the main street. He went straight ahead to the waterfront and then turned right. In a few moments, the car drew up in front of Captain Mike's shack. The captain opened the door and peered out. Be with you in a minute. In much less than a minute, he was out again, clad in a jacket and officer's cap. Howdy. Did you see much from your airplane? He greeted them. How'd you know it was our airplane? Rick asked curiously. Huh. You don't give people credit for knowing much, do you? I'll bet everyone in Seaford knows about your airplane. Anyone who reads their Whiteside Morning Record, at least. But all cubs look alike, Rick protested. And most of them are painted yellow. Captain Mike snorted. What of it? Northern yellow plays in this area. And you've been seen on the ground in Seaford twice already. What would anybody think? Especially when you're on a direct bearing for Spindrift when you leave. He's got something there, Scotty said. It is a logical conclusion. Rick had to agree. Well, you're the guide, Captain. Where to? The pier. 
Captain Mike looked at the fast-fading light to the west. It's time for the trawlers to be coming in. Reckon we'll talk to a couple of folk and get a look at the albatross and her crew. Rick turned the car around and headed for town. Why don't you tell us all you know about the albatross visiting Creek House? I intend to. First off, the albatross has been there three times I know of, and each time she's put in on her way back from the fishing grounds. Now that's mighty strange. First thing a captain thinks of is getting his fish into port, but not Brad Marbeck. Instead, he lays in at Creek House Pier until nigh unto midnight, then he puts it to the wharf and unloads his fish. Now what do you make of that? Rick made nothing out of it. The albatross certainly wouldn't be calling at Creek House just to be sociable. Were these calls made at regular intervals? No. One was two weeks ago. One was four nights ago. And the last time was the night before last. Was it four nights ago, the night you saw Tom Tyler at Crick House? Scotty recalled. It was. That's one reason I'm sure the albatross is tied up with the wreck of the sea bell. Rick searched for possible reasons why the trawler should tie up at Creek House and rejected all but one of them. He had the beginnings of an idea, but he needed to think about it a little more before he broached it. Captain, you've been keeping an eye on the Kelsos for quite a while, it sounds like, Rick said. Do they ever have any visitors? Ain't never seen any. No trucks? Rick asked. Nope, never seen any of those either. They were approaching the big, shed-like fish pier. It was brilliantly lit. At Captain Mike's direction, Rick pulled off the street and parked. What happens to the Manhattan after they've been unloaded? Scotty wanted to know. You ever notice that one-story building next to the pier? Well, they go into that on conveyor belts. When the oil is cooked off of them, what's left is turned into feed or fertilizer. You'd know if you'd ever been here while the plant was processing and the wind was inshore. It's the dangest smell you ever smelt, like a ruin to your nose. Rick sniffed the fishy air. I believe it, he said. Captain Mike had been leading the way toward the big pier. Now he turned onto the pier itself. Some trawlers were already tied up and were being unloaded by bucket cranes. The reek of fish was strong enough to make Rick wish for a gas mask. He saw Scotty's nose wrinkle and knew his pal wasn't enjoying it either. The captain stopped at the first trawler and hailed the bridge. A big man in an officer's cap answered the hail. Let's go aboard, Captain Mike said. This here is the Jenny Lake. We'll talk with Bill Lake for a minute. Bill Lake was the skipper, the man they had seen directing the unloading from the bridge. He greeted Captain Mike cordially. The captain introduced the two young men, and Lake shook hands without taking his eyes from the unloading operation. Rick saw a scoop drop into the hold and come up with a slippery half-ton of Manhattan. Then it sped over a beam track into the big shed, paused over a wide conveyor belt, lowered to within a few feet of the belt, and dumped its load. A clerk just inside the door marked the load on a board. Rick looked for the winch operator and found him opposite the clerk. The scoop came back rapidly and sped out the track extension above the hold and paused. Bill Lake signaled and the bucket dropped slowly. At a further signal, it opened its jaws and plunged into the mass of fish and then slowly crunched closed and lifted again. There was certainly no wasted motion here, Rick thought. 
Captain Mike asked too casually. What'd you think of Tom Tyler running into Smuggler's Reef, Bill? Bill's cordiality seemed to freeze up. None of my business, he said shortly. Can't pass judgment on a fellow skipper. Captain Mike nodded. Reckon that's right. Bill, how did you find the visibility last night? None too good. There was a heavy current running, too. That's interesting. How'd you know that? A patch of mist drifted in. Anyway, I lost the light for a bit. Then when the mist cleared, the current had set us two points off course. Captain Lake's forehead wrinkled as he watched the scoop return for another load. Mighty funny, too. Usually there's no current to speak of off Brendan's Marsh. But I've had, but I've said for quite a while that the currents hereabouts are changing. And it looks like this proves it. Was Captain Tyler directly ahead of you, sir? Rick asked. Not directly. He was three ahead, the way I figure. Brad Marbeck was right behind him, and then came Jim Killian. How far apart were you? Rick inquired. Ah, quite a ways. Jim was pretty close in front of me, but Brad was almost out of sight. Don't know how close he followed Tom. Captain Mike spat over the side. Sad business, anyway. Well, Bill, I'm taking these lads on a little tour of the pier. Reckon we'll be pushing along. Looks like you'll be busy unloading for an hour or so. The boys shook hands with Captain Lake again and then followed their guide to the pier once more. Captain Mike waited until a scoopful of Manhattan had passed overhead and then led the way down the pier. I wonder if Captain Killian got set off course by that current, Rick mused. I'd like to talk to him. Captain Mike shot a glance at him. Might be interesting at that. You think of the same as I am? We all are, Scotty replied. That business about losing the light and having the current set him off course sounded kind of strange to me. Is he a good guy? Rick queried. Best there is, if he says it had happened. But it's mighty funny just the same. Reckon we'll have to find Jim Killian. They passed three trawlers, all unloading, and Rick recognized the names that Scotty had read aloud during their brief flight over the fleet. Many of the men they passed hailed Captain Mike. Evidently, he was well known to the fishermen and pier workers. Suddenly, the old man stopped. There's Brad Marbeck's craft. The next trawler in line was the albatross. Rick looked over it critically. It was indistinguishable from the others. There was the same cabin set well forward, the same large working space aft, the same net booms. It was no dirtier nor cleaner than the others. Evidently, it was filled with fish because only the top plimsoll number was showing. But the skipper was far from average. Brad Marbeck, as Rick saw him on the deck overhead, was a bull of a man. He was about six feet tall, but his width made him look shorter. His shoulder span would have done credit to a Percheron horse, and from his shoulders his torso dropped in almost a straight line. His waist lacked only an inch or two of being as wide as his shoulders. His legs were short and thick and planted wide on the deck. His head was massive and set squarely on his shoulders with hardly any neck. He was hatless and his coarse black hair cropped short. He stood straight up like a vegetable brush. His face was weathered to a dark mahogany color. Not very pretty, is he? 
Scotty whispered. That, Rick thought, was a masterpiece of understatement. He started to tell Scotty that compared with Brad Marbeck, a Hereford bull was downright winsome. But at that moment, Captain Mike hailed the abatross. Howdy, Brad! How's the fishing? The skipper's reply was cordial enough. Howdy, Captain Mike. Took another good haul today. Just starting to unload. Marbeck's black eyes surveyed the two young men briefly, then evidently dismissed them as of no importance. Come on aboard. Thanks, we will. Captain Mike motioned to the two boys and led them the way up the gangplank just as a scoop full of Manhattan rose from the hold and passed overhead. On deck, the captain introduced the boys to Marbeck. Rick found his hand imprisoned in a hoardy mass that appeared to be controlled by steel cables instead of tendons. He tried not to wince. Best season I've seen in years, Marbeck told Captain Mike. That's what everybody's saying, Captain Mike acknowledged. Why, only two days ago, I heard. Scotty nudged Rick with a sharp elbow. He was looking at the pier. Rick turned and followed his pal's glance, and then saw what Scotty was looking at. He inhaled sharply. Carrots Kelso was leaning against a pillar, watching them. I wonder what's on his mind, Rick asked. Brad Marbeck saw the direction of their glance. You kids know Jimmy? He's my nephew. The pause before Captain Mike spoke was proof of his surprise. You don't say... He changed the subject abruptly. Say, Brad, I've been meaning to ask you. Did you notice any peculiar currents offshore last night? Currents? Can't say I did. Why? Bill Lake claims a strong current set him off course just as he picked up Smuggler's Light about the time Tom Tyler ran aground. Rick thought that Brad Marbeck hesitated slightly and searched for the right answer. Now that you mention it, I did notice a little shift. A scoop whirred out of the hold, crossed the pier and dumped its load and started to return. Let me know if you find out any more about it, Barbeck said. Right now, I gotta attend to my unloading. Sure, Brad, we'll be getting on. By the way, do you happen to notice where Jim Killian is tied up? Think he's on the other side of the pier. Cross over and duck under the belts. He should be right a beam of us. Thank you. Let's go, boys. Captain Mike led the way down the gangplank with Rick and Scotty following. Rick felt Brad Marbeck's eyes on them. He had sensed tension under the fisherman's surface cordiality, and he was interested in the quick way Marbeck had remembered the strange current when Captain Mike quoted Bill Lake. At the foot of the gangplank, Captain Mike paused. Let's find Jim. I'm getting real curious about that current that Bill mentioned. What do you say? We're right with you, Scotty replied. Rick watched the big scoop vanish into the albatross's hold and then looked for Carrots Kelso. He was no longer in sight. I wonder where Carrots went to, he said to Scotty. Probably running until his father were prowling around the pier. Captain Mike led the way into the pier shed. He turned to look over his shoulder at the boys. What'd you think of Marbeck claiming that young Kelso was his nephew? 
Don't you think he really is? Rick asked. He had to raise his voice above the noise of the scoop as it lifted from the trawler's hold. Surprise to me. I've known Marbeck 15 years and never heard of any family. Why, look out! On the heels of Scotty's cry, Rick caught a glimpse of his pal hurling Captain Mike headlong. He jumped forward, glancing up, just as the great fish scoop opened over his head. He put all his energy in a forward leap to safety, but it was too late. Thousands of cascading Manhattan crushed him violently to the floor.